And while you're coming in to settle in for our continued series, Mind Games, How to Think For and About Yourself, ninth session today on that, let me mention some things that are coming up. Tomorrow at noon at the Lake Erie Metro Park is our Labor Day picnic. Everybody's invited and encouraged to come. It's going to be warm, I'm told. However, we're by the lake, and the lake always gives us about 8 or 10 degrees. So, you buying any of that? <laughs> but, uh, so it is better than not being by the lake. But it is going to be a warm day tomorrow, but we'll have a great time. We always do. Noon is when we start eating, so be there at uh, noon. And in the program, we tell you what it is we ask you to bring. Side dish, dessert, and a beverage. The church provides the main dish. And we're having catered pulled pork and grilled chicken for uh, tomorrow's event. If you don't like either of those, then... In addition to your dessert and side dish, bring something else. But uh, we put it in the program, and I'm telling you that so you know what the main dish is going to be for tomorrow. Noon, uh, tomorrow, Lake Erie Metro Park. And we're going to be at a different shelter than we've had in the past. In the past, we've gone to what they call the muskrat shelter. We reserved one closer to a kid's play area this time. It's called the cattail uh, shelter. We have maps for that inserted in your program. So you've got the map. If you forget that, you can just ask the folks as you go in and pay your $7. It costs $7, unfortunately, to get into the uh, park. But uh, come, if you can, we'll have a great time together. And then we start one week from Wednesday with our midweek program. It's been uh, in hiatus for the summer, as is always the case. We go during the school year, so we start up in September and we end in early May. Two semesters. We'll start then the fall semester one week from Wednesday. And for the Adult Community Institute, we have four classes that we're offering. Those are listed on an insert in your program as well. And there's a description on the back side of that. And on the other side is a registration form that you can turn in. So mark that. We have uh, ministries for your children. While you are in one of those uh, institute classes, no matter what age your child is, uh, we have ministries uh, for them. So that's uh, some of the stuff that's coming up. I don't think there's anything else urgent. The only other thing I want to underscore is our community groups. Over the next several weeks, we will have, as we did today, an insert in the program with an enrollment card for those. Those are our Sunday night home groups. Uh, on October the 18th, we're going to start new groups. So the current groups are going to be broken up, and we will have new groups for the next year. And then every year in the fall, we break, we'll break up the groups and form new group, groups. So it's an opportune time for you to enroll if you're not currently in a group. If you are already in a group, you don't need to turn in a card. Uh, I was asked about that during the refreshment time. If you're already in a group, we assume you want to continue to be in a group, and we'll assign you to, to a group, the new ones that start October 18th. But if you're not currently in a group, then we don't know whether you want to be in one or not. We have to know that, so turn in that enrollment card. And also on that enrollment card, it asks you if you're interested in knowing more about hosting a community group. As our church grows and we get more people involved in those home groups, it means we need more homes to host them. And ideally, each group would have two homes that alternate on the hosting. And that way, the full burden is not on one home, one family. And if that family's away or sick or something like that, you've got another home to go to. So that's what we would like to do. The more homes we have, the better we're able to assign them and break them up and have that kind of cooperative effort. So on that uh, form, fill out if you want to join one and also check off uh, that you're interested in more information about hosting. 
If you check off that box about hosting, it doesn't mean you're hosting. Uh, it doesn't mean that we're going to assume uh, that you want to do this until we've had a chance to talk to you about it. You're just saying, I'm thinking about it. I'm willing to get information regarding hosting a group at my house, and then we'll get with you to help you make that decision. Okay? All right. We've been in this series, Mind Games, for eight weeks now. This is our ninth week in the series. And I have told you that one of the reasons that I wanted to do a series uh, on this topic is because the area of the mind and how we think is one that is too often neglected. And in neglecting the way we think, we are actually neglecting what is very near the root of the things we say and the things we do. Too often we make the mistake in our churches and in our teaching Uh, whether explicitly or implicitly, in the way we teach people what sanctification is, what growth in the Christian life is, we make the mistake of giving people the idea that it involves mostly what you do. And if you learn to do the right things, and if you learn to avoid doing the wrong things, then you're growing in Jesus. Now, of course, it's true that we are required in Scripture to obey and do the right things. And that also, that obedience means avoiding not doing the wrong things. So I'm not, uh, I'm not deprecating the importance of doing right and avoiding wrong. But the root of what we do is actually in our hearts. And the Bible uses our hearts to include our thought processes. So the desires that we have give rise to the thoughts that we that we that we have, which in turn produces the words that we speak and the actions that we carry out. So if you focus on the on the actions, then you're focusing merely on the external and frankly a more superficial approach to Christian growth. A deeper approach, a more radical approach, uh, something that gets to the root, thus the word radical, that gets to the root, then gets to the heart of what we're about. And that includes our, our thinking. So mind games, how to think for and about yourself. To understand that God is interested in what goes on in your head and in my head as we think about ourselves, about others, about him, and about our place in, in his world. Over these last few weeks, then, I've tried to give you a number of ways that that uh, should be carried out if we are mindful of our minds if we are thinking about our thoughts. But now for the next few weeks, I'd like to move into yet another area of the way we think. And that is this. How it is that we discern, how it is that we determine and know God's will for our lives. Because determining that is a matter of of thinking about it, making choices based upon your thoughts and your ruminations about what God has for you and where God has placed you. So I would like to, beginning today and for the next few weeks, talk about this very important issue of decision-making and the will of God. Decision-making and the will of God. And I don't know if our resource center people are in here, but if any of the resource center types, we do have a resource center type in the back, having identified herself. Uh, we need to check and see if we still have copies of Decision-Making and the Will of God on the shelf. That's the name of the book, 
And the author's name is Gary Friesen. Gary Friesen. And it's a thick book that covers this topic very well and very exhaustively. And it was a book that was very, very helpful to me about 30 years ago. Uh, so it's that uh, it's that old. They've had an updated edition as of a few years ago. So Decision Making in the Will of God by Gary Friesen. If we don't have that in the Resource Center, we're going to get some, okay? And I encourage you to have that in your library. Well, let me start off then by talking about ways that we go about deciding, making decisions that we believe are in the will of God that I think are erroneous. I think these are the wrong ways to do it. And I'll start out this way because as I go through these, many of you are going to say, yikes, that's the way I do it. So I'm hoping that some of you will identify, or I'm guessing that some of you will identify with a few of these. And then I want to hit on what I think is the Bible's approach to making our decisions. So here is one erroneous way of making decisions. I call it feeling-based decision-making. Feeling-based decision-making. That is, I make decisions because in my gut, I think they're the right thing to do. Uh, I feel like it's the right thing to do. I have a good feeling uh, about it. Now, in Christian circles, of course, we never say just that. We don't say, I made a decision because I had a gut feeling. We don't say, it was a hunch. And I was feeling good about it, that this is the right thing to do. We don't say that. In fact, in churches, we never say stuff just as bluntly as that. We always baptize the stuff we say with Christian terminology. So it's not I had a hunch or I had a gut feel. It's I had a peace about it. We've even got verses that go with all this. right? Philippians 4, 7. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we go to a Philippians 4, 7 and say, you know, in order for you to make a proper decision, you've got to have peace about that decision based upon the Bible, apparently. Now, as you can tell, I've placed this in the erroneous category. This is not the way to do it. And so I'm going to show you probably next week that Philippians 4, 7 is being misused when it's used in that way. That's not what Philippians 4, 7 is is about. That for you and for me to make decisions, we need to have a a peace about it. The truth is that you could have a peace about something and it be the wrong decision. You can feel good about the wrong decision. Another way we would state this feeling-oriented, feeling-based decision-making is not just to have a peace about it, but the Lord what? What are we going to say? The Lord led me. More specifically, I felt led. I mean, how do you know the Lord's leading? Because I felt led. I felt led of the Lord to X. And so that feeling guided my choice, and then I made the choice, and I attribute that then to the Lord, and thus it's the Lord's will. Will. Feeling-based decision-making. Now, the, with all of these, I've just got three erroneous ways 
categories of how people do this, but with each of them, the main reason that they're wrong is not that they practically don't work out, but the main reason they're wrong is because they're not what the Bible teaches. I'm convinced about how we're to make decisions. But practically speaking, it is the case that a feeling-based approach is erroneous, that in practice, it very often doesn't work. And one of the reasons it doesn't work is because in the minds of those who discern God's will based upon their feelings, they adopt an approach toward emotion and toward feeling very much like the culture at large approaches emotion and feeling. And that is this, that our emotions are autonomous, that our feelings are just what they are. And so you can't, you can't judge my feeling. That's just the way I feel. That's what we think. But would it surprise you to know that the Bible actually commands us to feel particular ways? But in our minds, feelings are just things that just happen to you. And you either got it or you don't. You either feel it or you don't. So as an approach to, if you, if you think that, this autonomous approach to emotion and feeling, then as an approach to decision making, it can never be questioned. It can never be negated. It can never be invalidated because your feelings, we think, are always valid. And biblically, our feelings are not always valid. As sinful people who are totally sinful, that is, sin has affected each part of our person, personality, our mind, and our will, and our emotion, it's affected all of us. So being able to trust your feelings as being autonomous guides to what I ought to do is practically erroneous in addition to being biblically erroneous. So feeling-based decision-making is one of the wrong ways. I felt led of the Lord. I have a peace about it. But a second one is what I call outcome-based decision-making. Outcome-based And the idea here is that if a decision turned out bad, then that was out of God's will. That was a wrong decision. If it turned out bad, then God didn't want you to make that decision. Or if it turned out good, conversely, then it's a good decision. This is a God-honoring decision. This is a decision that's within the will of God. It all depends on how it turns out. So what you're trying to do when you make your decisions are make your decisions based upon what's going to turn out the best, what's going to have the best outcome. Well, can you guys think about people making decisions in the Bible where the outcome was really lousy and yet God was pleased? How many times do you have Peter saying to Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem? And Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem. And not only is it so important that I go to Jerusalem, not only is it important that I go to Jerusalem, you trying to keep me from going to Jerusalem is an act of the devil. Get behind me, Satan. Do you guys remember that? You're Peter. You're just trying to protect Jesus from harm in Jerusalem. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Wow. That's what you get for trying to help a friend. That's what Peter's thinking. 
Jesus, of course, goes to Jerusalem. How did that turn out? He gets arrested. He's crucified. But this is all, of course, absolutely God's will. So it didn't turn out well in the sense that he was arrested, but of course this was all God's plan. So whether the circumstances then that attend the decision or result from the decision are good from our perspective or bad from our perspective does not tell you whether or not the decision itself was good or bad, right or wrong. There are times when a decision turns out good, but it was the wrong thing to do. And God in his mercy had it overruled our foolishness or our sin. Joseph's brothers. You remember the story of Joseph. And you remember that his brothers left him for dead, really. And for all they knew, he was dead. And you remember how God worked providentially through Joseph's circumstances to bring him to prominence in Egypt. And then a famine occurs that brings the brothers many years later to Egypt to get food. Food that Joseph is now in charge of. And then now they are brought face to face with this brother that they figure is long gone, probably dead. And in the last chapter of the book of Genesis, chapter 50 and verse 20, Joseph mercifully says to these brothers that he could have arrested and killed given the prominent position he has and the treachery that they performed. He says, you meant it for evil, but God intended it for good. Well, it turned out good. But the whole decision-making process was bad. And if you're Joseph's brothers, you might be saying, Hey, you owe us. If it wasn't for us starting this whole process, it wouldn't have come down, came out this way. And of course, some of you are laughing, by the way, thank you. And you're laughing, why? Because of the absurdity of the idea that Joseph's brothers would say, we did the right thing. They did the wrong thing, and it turned out well. Now, if you think about your life, I'm guessing that there are things that you could look back on, if you would, with an objective lens. Hard for us to do. Hard for all of us to have an objective lens as we look at ourselves. But if you look back on it, you you could look at things and say, I should have done this. But now these years later, God in his mercy, God as he's redeeming even our sinful choices, our foolish choices, has brought you to where you are, maybe a circuitous route, but here you are. That doesn't mean that the decisions you made were good. They may or may not have been. The outcome, whether a good outcome or a bad outcome, a difficult outcome or a comfortable one, does not say anything about whether the original decision was right. And if you're an outcome-based person in your decision-making, my experience is you will also be a fear-based person in your decision-making. That is, you will be somebody who's afraid to pull the trigger and make a decision. And I have met uh, people like this. And it's a, it's a very tough way to live. <laughs> to be in fear as to whether or not 
you should make the decision because you are so worried about how it will turn out. You know what, guys and gals? Ultimately, the truth of the matter is, in every decision you make, you don't know how it will turn out. Every decision you make, you don't know. Something could happen this afternoon, tomorrow, that would totally change the dynamic. So the sooner you grab onto that, the sooner you can start to minimize, lessen that fear that you have about what's going to happen if it doesn't turn out. And this is particularly debilitating if you're in a leadership position and you're fearful about what's going to happen. I can believe me, I know about this. I know about leading decisions that could go south. And if you're fear-based because of the outcome on the decisions, then you will not be able to lead. And it doesn't if they turn out well, it doesn't mean, you know, you're like I said, the outcome doesn't say it was a good decision or a bad decision necessarily. So it doesn't mean you're smart, doesn't mean you're you're wise necessarily. How it turned out doesn't tell you any of that. But if you're going to lead a home, if you're going to lead a business, if you're going to lead a church, you have to be able to lose the fear of how it might turn out. I have uh, I know a pastor who is one of the most fearful guys I have ever met with regard to making decisions. And as a result of that, he is indecisive. And it kills you in leadership if you're indecisive. And I'll just give you this example. It's a true story. Uh, Years ago, uh, this friend and I used to go to some conferences together. We haven't been able to do that for the last many years, but years ago we did. And at the beginning of the year, we would identify two or three pastors' conferences that we would like to go to. And this one year... We identified some, and as we approached the May date for this one conference, I said, so hey, a month out, are, are you going? And he says, uh, you know, I'm, th- I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it. All right, it's a month out. A couple of weeks out, hey, you going? Uh, I'm thinking about it. A week out, I'm thinking about it. The week of, I'm thinking about it. I gave up on him the week of. I'm packed. I'm driving to the Cleveland area to go to this thing that day. I'm dropping Annie off at school, and my cell phone rings. And it's my pastor friend. It's the day of. And he says to me, he doesn't say to me, I've decided to go. He says, I'm thinking about going. And I say, dude, I'm dropping Annie off in 10 minutes. And then I'm heading toward Cleveland or I'm heading toward your house. But you got to let me know in the next 10 minutes. So he can't tell me on the phone. He calls me back and says, okay, I'm going. And I stop by his house and I pick him up and he's thrown stuff in a suitcase. And we go and we have a good time together as I tease him mercilessly for three days. Now, that's an extreme, but it's, it's one, it's true. And you can see how it can be debilitating. Outcome-based decision-making. And then a third erroneous way is opportunity-based decision-making. 
opportunity-based decision-making. That is, I know this is the right decision because there's this opportunity. And the only way there could be this opportunity is if it's a God thing. So God, we say, has given the opportunity. That's the sign for me that I need to take advantage of this opportunity. And just like with the feeling-based decision-making, where we never just say it that way, opportunity, we baptize it. So we say the Lord did what the Lord opened, opened the door. Now, in God's providence, God is always at work in the affairs of men and women. Always. And he is always moving the chess pieces around. So it is always the case that there are doors that open and there are doors that close. Here's the problem. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell you you make your decisions based upon that. And if you think about it, how do you know that this open door is a good open door? How, how, do, you, how do you know that? Okay, the door's open, you've got the opportunity, but still, how do I know that this is a good one? So with feeling-based decision-making, we say things like, I have a peace about it, I felt led of the Lord. With outcome-based decision-making, we say the Lord worked it out. And with opportunity-based decision-making, we say the Lord opened the door. Those are erroneous ways of making decisions. What's the, the proper way to make decisions? Here's what I call it, purpose-based decision-making. You could, you could call it different things, but I call it that, purpose-based based decision-making. Now, what purpose-based decision-making does is this. It assumes you know your purpose. It assumes you know your purpose individually, personally. You know why God has you here. You know what it is that God requires of us in his world. And you are making your decisions in order to advance God's revealed purpose. If every decision you make then is made for the purpose, for the intention of advancing God's revealed purpose, then you can make those decisions with confidence and don't worry about it. What a great place to be in. For myself, that's been the way I roll for... 30-some years. What am I here for? Now I want to fit all of my decisions into that. How does this decision advance that? And if I make this decision for the purpose of advancing God's revealed, the intention of advancing God's revealed purpose, then I can make the decision and I can put my head to the pillow and rest. Now, does it mean they all turn out the way I want them to? No. But remember how it turned out doesn't say whether the initial decision was was right or wrong. It can turn out good, it can turn out bad. What matters for me, what matters for you, is on what basis did I make this decision? And the decision needs to be purpose-based. So, it means you got to know what your purpose is. And therefore, as part of this sub-series... I'll be talking about that. But just to give you a a clue, the purpose for which God has left you and me here as Christians is to advance his mission. 
advance his mission in his world. That's why you're here. And if it wasn't for that, then God could, and I guess would, just beam you up. Just beam me up now. I'm already going to heaven. Being down here isn't always fun in a fallen world. Take me home. But no, the Lord has has left me here. He's left you here to carry out his mission. Therefore, make your decisions to advance that. So I'll try to prove that to you, that that's why you're here. And therefore, your decisions, if they're going to be purpose-based, need to be surrounded with regard to that. So erroneous ways, feeling-based, outcome-based, opportunity-based. The right way is purpose-based. Now, a related issue then to all of this decision-making is what do you know about the will of God? Because the title of the book that I recommended to you is Decision-Making and the Will of God. Presumably, all of us here want to make decisions that are in line with the will of God. So I want to make decisions that are in line with what God wants, which means I have to know something about the will of God. So I'd like to start in our remaining five minutes talking about what the will of God is and what the will of God is not, and we will continue that next week, okay? But one of the major sources of confusion related to the issue of God's will is the terms we use to describe it. So we often use the phrase God's will to refer either to whatever happens or sometimes we use God's will to refer to what God wants. So the same phrase, God's will, is sometimes used of whatever comes to pass, but it's also sometimes used to refer to what God wants. And yet, think about this for a minute. Is everything that happens what God approves, wants, desires? So if you use God's will to refer to everything that comes to pass and what God wants, we got a problem. Because there's stuff that happens that are not things that God wants. I mean, sin, right? Sin happens. If you use God's will only as God's will is everything that happens, well, then God's will includes sin. If you're using the, the phrase God's will to mean what God wants... Do you want to use sin in that? That God wants sin? So how do you how do you navigate that? Well, there are two aspects to God's will, and lots of people over the years have used different terms to describe these two aspects of God's what we call God's will. And whether you use the term I'm going to give you or not doesn't matter. Here's what does matter. You've got to have a way of distinguishing between whatever comes to pass and what God wants and approves and desires. You've got to have a way to distinguish those. So the first, uh, the first I call, whatever comes to pass, I call God's plan. God's plan. So I'm removing God's will since that's become so ambiguous because it's used different ways. I'm not calling it God's will, I'm calling it God's plan. And God's plan includes his sovereign will. God has planned whatever comes to pass. 
He's sovereign and he has determined and decreed in eternity past what comes to pass. The second London Baptist Confession of 1689. Baptists back in 1689 wrote this. God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably, all things which shall ever come to pass. There were some smart Baptists back in those days. We've gotten a lot dumber over the years, believe me. We could use some Second London Baptist Confession. But it's really a a marvelous confession, especially in terms of what it presents about the character of God and the decrees of God and salvation and so on. So that's the second London Baptist Confession, 17th century. Here's what the scriptures say. In Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a ravenous bird from the east. The man that executes my counsel from a far country. I have spoken it. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. That's a sovereign God there, isn't it? And he's saying, I'll use a bird. I'll use a man. I'll use whatever means are at my disposal, which are how many? That would be all of them. To accomplish what I've determined, the end. I've determined the end, how it's going to come out from the beginning. This is why you guys that are in BSF that are starting a week from Tuesday, and you're going to study the book of Revelation. And gals, some of the gals are taken. Okay. Revelation. This is why we care about the book of Revelation. Because it tells you how it's going to turn out. But how does God know how it's going to turn out? Here's how. Because he's that kind of God. He determines the end from the beginning. The reason you can have a bookend book of the 66 in your Bible that says, here's how it turns out, is because there's a sovereign God who's made sure that's going to happen. So there's there's God's sovereign will, and the scriptures make that very clear. And what all does God use? In his sovereign will, his plan, anything he wants. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 10, and verse 30, he said, The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, when you hear that, you can say, well, okay, we know that God is like infinitely knowledgeable. God is omniscient. He knows everything. So that's no big surprise to me that God's mind is like an infinite computer that can calculate everything instantaneously. And he knows at any moment how many hairs are on your head. Okay. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't just say, all the hairs of your head are numbered. He said that, but in the verse before that, Matthew 10, 29, the hairs of your head are numbered, Matthew 10, 30. Matthew 10, 29. Are not two sparrows sold 
for a penny. And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And then he says, and the very hairs of your head are all numbered. In the context, here's what he's saying. (laughs) When you're combing your hair and hair's falling out. (laughs) Okay, who do I offend over here? (laughs) And hair's coming out. Jesus is saying those hairs come out by the will of your father. So when we talk about God's plan and him determining the end from the very beginning and then using anything he so pleases in between in order to accomplish it, it means everything, every little minute thing. In the words of one author, that means there ain't one maverick molecule in God's universe. There's not one molecule that's out there on its own doing its own thing. It's all under the control of the sovereign God who has determined the end from the beginning. That's God's sovereign will. That's God's plan. There are other passages that speak to that. I'll give you some more of those next week. And then we'll look at this other, a different aspect, important aspect of God's will, in addition to his His plan, his sovereign will. Let's ask the Lord to go with us, okay? Father, thank you for meeting with us and allowing us to meet together in your presence and with your people. And Lord, we ask you to go with us this week and ask you to help us to apply what we have learned from your word today. Lord, uh, help us to apply what we heard in the first hour about the nature of of humanity and yet your grace that, that intervenes. And were it not for your intervening grace, but for the grace of God, so go we. Lord, help us this week to think about our thinking to think about our decision-making and to do so in light of your will, what it is that you have for us, what it is that you want for us. We ask you, Lord, to grant us safety and to bring us back together next Lord's Day. In Jesus' name, amen.